Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Dr. Amanda McMillan LeCue, Assistant Professor in Sociology at Drexel University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and author of the forthcoming book, Who We Are is Where We Are, Making Home in the American Rust Belt. Amanda joins us to discuss Kai Erickson's Everything in Its Path, Destruction of Community in the Buffalo Creek Flood from 1976. Amanda introduces us to Erickson's subtle approach to theorizing, which he employs to better understand the Appalachian's community response to environmental disaster. As she guides us through excerpts from the book, Amanda helps us understand Erickson's concepts of community and communality, as well as the importance of time, space, and place to his theorizing. We conclude with a short discussion of potential critiques of Erickson's classic work. As always, a PDF of the two chapters discussed are available on the show notes. Thanks for joining us today, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. So we are here today to talk about Kai Erickson, which is exciting for me because this is one of those names that's kind of drifted out there in the ether, and I've never really had a chance to read him before. And so what I'm wondering is, how did you choose to talk about Kai Erickson today? Yeah, so Kai Erickson's work showed up on my radar my first year of graduate school at the University of Wisconsin-Madison because my advisor, Michael Bell, was Kai Erickson's advisee um, at Yale. I was floundering around, interested generically in place and environment, and Mike Bell handed me Everything in Its Path, which is the book I'm going to talk about today. And I just found it um, paradigm shifting in a way that I continually refer back to this book and some of the ideas I learned from it about community, about place, about the role of the physicality of where we live and breathe and move um, in in dealing with change. Uh, through all of my grad degree and now as I work on my book project and in, in my teaching, I keep coming back to these ideas introduced by Kai. And so this is, he handed it to you and it was something you read on your own rather than something you read in a seminar. Yeah, so it was just a suggestion early on in my grad program, and I devoured it. This is one of the books, and I'll read some excerpts and you'll see soon. One of those types of sociological writing that just pulls you in. It's concrete. It's built in a specific case study. And yet there are these generalizabilities, these big themes, these questions that Erickson raises that really uh, sparked my curiosity as a new researcher. Yeah, and it seems like a kind of mundane point, but it really matters that if you're handed a book and you actually read it on your own versus being forced to read it, it shows something about the book. Because I've definitely been handed a lot of theory-heavy books in grad school that I picked up and (laughs) I wasn't able to get motivated to sit down and work through it. But the fact that it was paradigm-shifting, as you said, on your own, I think that's really important. There's only a handful of books that are sociological research that someone who's not an academic, if they want to read sociology, I'll hand them. This is one of maybe three books that I might hand them uh, because it's just so accessible. And that was one of the first things that stood out to me when I was reading this. But let's. So why did you choose these particular chapters? So you sent me uh, one chapter and the conclusion. How did you decide to do that? As context, this book is about a specific, uh, what Erickson calls an acute disaster Um, a collapse of a dam in West Virginia that flooded with mine slurry, with coal slurry, um, flooded an entire valley and 16 hamlets along those valleys. Um, And so much of the book is actually working through the empirical evidence, the case of this big disaster and the aftermath. 
the aftermath is really what Erickson's interested in. So what I want to have us look at is um, the last substantive chapter of the book, Collective Trauma, Loss of Communality. And I'll only really walk us through maybe half of that chapter because it, it's longer. And then just a little bit of the conclusion, because this is where Kai Erickson's pulling out the theory. Most people would not put Kai Erickson as a theorist in a classical sense. We wouldn't be setting him next to Bourdieu or Durkheim necessarily on the shelf, but he has such a light touch, so concrete and grounded in evidence that it's, I find it most uh, compelling in these, these last couple chapters. Where might you use this book or these chapters? Would you use it in a theory course or would it be more focused on topics? Yeah, so I can see it going in both ways. Um, so personally, I'm an environmental sociologist, and this is absolutely a book appropriate for a sociology of environment class um, or a disasters and risk class, which is another core class within the canon of environmental sociology. But more broadly, um, coming from Wisconsin, where there's a strong rural and community and environmental sociology program, this is a book that's appropriate when we want to ask questions about what community is. Uh, Erickson also grapples with social psychology. And uh, throughout this book, actually, in sections that we're not going to read today. So I could see this um, as a really great application um, of certain social psychological approaches and maybe even a social problems course, because we're thinking about disasters. We're thinking about how communities grapple with big, big crises, both acute and chronic, those longer term disasters. But personally, I used this last term in a qualitative methods class, and I thought it went really well. This was the first reading I had my students do in this class. And I, I like this book because it's, it's 1976. Erickson was writing in the midst of the quantification rise in sociology programs in the United States. And this qualitative and historical work is really a life raft for qualitative community-based researchers. Oh, okay. He's yeah. really showing how the stories people are telling, the way they're making sense and making meaning of their own experiences matters in a fundamental way if we're going to answer questions about how our society works, more than just the numbers and aggregate data. So I use this to teach thick description in the first week of, of qualitative methods class. And my students were able to pull out some really good critiques even of the methodologies that Erickson uses, uh, which are less ethnographic and more based on already transcribed inf information from past research done by a, a class action lawsuit, actually, oh, okay. um, in this case. So it's a really powerful book for diving in, giving us a little snapshot of a certain period of time in sociological research. I thought the connections, and I know you're saying we're, going to, we're not going to focus on this much today, but the connections to social psychology, mm -hmm. were they weren't necessarily what I expected when I started off this chapter. And when it ended up being a significant portion of his analysis of what people are experiencing, maybe it's in part the time that he's writing, but I, I actually enjoyed those parts of the reading a lot. It's really richly, you know, thickly written. And uh, his the, the way he moves between community and individual the way individuals are processing a disaster, a crisis event, and how the community changes are affecting them, um, both as individuals but also as social beings. I think this all it raises some really useful questions from a, from a social psychological perspective. And so, yeah, I think this is a great text for folks interested in thinking through social psychology in a community setting. Yeah, 
Well, uh, with that, let's get into the reading. So I know sure. the reading itself, this chapter starts out with this idea of community, and, I, and that was one of the things that you mentioned already. So it seems like a, a good starting place. So is there a particular page? And Oh, and I should remind everyone listening, so I'm going sh- to share these chapters online so people can follow along. If you want to sign in your classes, it's also a useful resource. So if you want to give us a place to start, that'd be great. Fantastic. I'm going to start off thinking about the idea of community and how Erickson defines it. So on page 186, I'm going to read kind of a longer segment here. And it's also a great summary of the disaster itself. All right. So 186, the disaster stretched human nerves to their outer edge. Those of us who did not experience it can never really comprehend the full horror of that day, but we can at least appreciate why it should cause such misery and why it should leave so deep a scar on the minds of those who lived through it. Our imagination can reach across the gulf of personal experience and begin to recreate those parts of the scene that touch the senses. Our eyes can almost see a burning black wave lashing down the hollow and taking everything in its path. The ears can almost hear a roar like thunder pierced by the screams and explosions and the crack of breaking timbers. The nostrils can almost smell the searing stench of mine waste and the sour odor of smoke and death and decay. All this we can begin to picture because the mind is good at imagery. But the people of Buffalo Creek suffered a good deal more that day for they were wrenched out of their communities, torn from the human surround in which they had been so deeply enmeshed. Much of the drama drains away when we begin to talk about such things, partly because the loss of communality seems a step removed from the vivid terror of the event itself, and partly because the people of the hollow so richly articulate when describing the flood and their reaction to it, do not really know how to express what their separation from the familiar tissues of home meant to them. Here, I'm going to skip to the beginning of the next paragraph. I use the term communality here rather than community in order to underscore the point that people are not referring to particular village territories when they lament the loss of community, but to the network of relationships that make up their general human surround. The persons who constitute the center of the network are usually called neighbors, the word being used in its biblical sense to identify those with whom one share bonds of intimacy and a feeling of mutual concern. The people of Buffalo Creek are, quote, neighbor people, which is a local way of referring to a style of relationship long familiar among social scientists. Townies called it Gemeinschaft, Cooley called it primary, Durkheim called it mechanical, Redfield called it folk, and every generation of social science since has found other ways to express the same thought, one of the most recent being Herbert Gann's concept of person orientation. So I have a few things to say based on what you read. (laughs) So the first thing is, when I read this last night and when you were just reading it now, my first reaction is I've never had a paragraph as good as that first paragraph <laughs> that leads off this chapter. That's a style of writing that's just so visceral and you don't usually get in social science text. Maybe it's a freedom that comes with the time. Maybe it's just him being a really good writer, but that immediately draws you into it, which is pretty exciting for something we're talking about on a theory podcast. Yeah. But the other thing, which is really key as you're reading it, is immediately he uses this term communality. And I was going to say, well, what is that? And then there's that definition of why he's using that rather than community. But could you walk us through what he's actually doing with that term? Sure. In fact, I'm going to take us to 189. So flip the page over. Okay. Uh, Let me read that he defines it a little bit later. Let me read his definition of communality, and then I'll unpack this a little bit further. Okay. So this is um, the right before the italicized quote on 189. 
Communality on Buffalo Creek can be best described as a state of mind shared among a particular gathering of people. And this state of mind, by definition, does not lend itself to sociological abstraction. It doesn't have a name or a cluster of distinguishing properties. It's a set of a quiet set of understandings that become absorbed into the atmosphere and are thus part of the natural order. What I really value about this is Erickson is addressing head on one of the core challenges of social science, which is trying to define what society is. Mm -hmm. Rural sociologists have for generations grappled with the question, what makes a rural community, particularly because we're talking about a low density of population. Even urban sociologists, and here I'm thinking of William Julius Wilson's work, which was about concurrent in the 1970s, um, contemporary with Erickson's work, focusing on Chicago, he also grappled with questions of what is a neighborhood in Chicago? How do we understand social problems on a spatial or geographic basis? And Erickson is trying to be really specific about this, not abstracting out, philosophizing, or even we would might say even theorizing about community, but really that's what he is theorizing. We're, we're being yeah. he's trying to give us principles, patterns, so that we can start thinking about community not in form of census tract necessarily, but how people conceptualize where they live, the places that matter to them and the people they consider as part of who they are. And I think that's a really powerful shift. At the basis, Erickson's a sociologist of communality, trying to parse how do individuals make sense of who they are in space, in place, with relationships to other people. And that's and that seems like a really key addition here because he refers to all these other, you know, these cla more classic theorists, and he mentions Durkheim, who seems really like Durkheim's influence seems pretty heavy in this yeah. reading. But then he says he always has these words about. Uh, it's about this specific territory, or in that last paragraph you read in 189, he says that it's was absorbed into the atmosphere. So it seems like it's a relationship to the physical environment that you're not finding in those other theorists he's referencing, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Erickson is a classic neo-Durkheimian with a bit of a twist. So this means that he takes seriously the social structure of kinship and village life, but he's really interested in how the communal forms, the sense of relating to one another actually serves an expression as an expression of larger social identity. Um, and specifically, he's very interested in how a crisis, a breakdown of that community that removes that taken for grantedness that he refers to on page 189, that atmosphere um, absorbed in the atmosphere. When, when that breaks down, how can we actually figure out what a community is? Maybe in the absence, maybe in the loss of this sense of social relationship, we can start answering not only what the bounds of a community might be socially or physically, but also how one's social psychological sense of self and identity is all wrapped up in community. And he also uses terms that are relatively accessible in doing that, right? So it's interesting yeah. even where he says the persons who, con and this is going back to 187, the persons who constitute the center of that network are usually called, and then you might expect a very specific social scientist term, but he says they're usually called neighbors, the word to be yeah. used in a biblical sense, right? So he's, yeah. he's, he keeps it even at that level saying, this is this thing that we inherently kind of feel or know about, um, so let's, but let's theorize within that. I think it's powerful to take intuitive parts of everyday life 
name them, not necessarily with jargony terms, but then use that naming process to be able to shed light, uh, open the black box to reveal the taken for granted, and then ask questions about how these components of social life work. Is communality a term that people continue to use after Erickson, or is it more that they just took his definition of community and stayed with, like in your work, for instance, do you ever use the term communality? I don't use the term communality. And to my knowledge, not too many folks do. Um, the I, I even, I've traced that debates about what a community is actually continue to uh, be waged in rural sociology, environmental sociology, other groups, uh, kind of classic community sociology, defining a community is still really challenging. And in part, that might reflect how the nature of our social attachments have also been changing over time. Um, In some ways, we might be socially attached to one another, but not physically in the same place. In other instances, we might be physically in the same place, but lacking a sense of connectedness with our neighbors. And so I, I think with every generation of social scientists, we're still grappling exactly with what communality might look like today, even if we're not exactly using that term. Yeah, and that, I think that leads into the next section that you wanted to talk about, which is one of the key tensions that he had in this chapter. And sociologists are constantly dealing with the relationship between the individual to the collective. And so we just talked about community. Can you take us to where he starts to theorize what the, what the individual actually does and how they relate to this concept? Absolutely. So I'm reading here on 191, uh, the non-italicized section. The difficulty is that when you invest so much of yourself in that kind of social arrangement, you become absorbed by it, almost captive to it, and the larger collectivity around you becomes an extension of your own personality, an extension of your own flesh. This means that not only are you diminished as a person when that that surrounding tissue is stripped away, but that you are no longer able to reclaim your own emotional resources you invested in it. To be neighborly is not a quality you can carry with you into a new situation like negotiable emotional currency. The old community was your niche in the classic ecological sense, and your ability to relate to that niche is not a skill easily transferred to another setting. This is true whether you move to another community, as was the case with the first speaker above, and he's referring to um, the italicized quotations, or whether a new set of neighbors moves in around your old home, as was the case with the second. There's a lot of key words in this paragraph. Yeah. Is there a point that you want to start? Because I have some questions about what he's meaning by a few different things and how they relate to each other. But I'm wondering why this paragraph, why you see it as being significant. Yes. This is a paragraph rife with tensions. And this is something that I both really admire about Erickson, but also often students wrestle with because there's not a clear definition or a way forward in this paragraph. Rather, he's trying to introduce this tension, this essentially a set of questions saying, all right, what happens when, um, if a community is really part, if communality is part of who we are as people, what happens when that set of neighborly relations disappears? We cannot assume that we as individuals are okay. There is surely some malaise, some illness of soul is, is kind of his, his uh, metaphor in this chapter that, that might occur because of that loss. 
So he's raising some questions, um, building on the quotations that are surrounding this interpretive section. I don't know if this is valuable in any way, but he often uses the term tissue throughout Mm -hmm. the text. And I was just trying to think what that actually included, right? Which is, it might be hard to, it might be hard to define, but it seems like it's capturing both the, both the sense of place and the relationship to all the surrounding people. Yeah. So here's where you can see the Durkheim, Durkheimian influence, actually, this idea of the collective as an organism. And he actually refers to this explicitly in a couple pages on 193, um, which I'll let folks look at it their own, on their own. But he, he talks about how it was fashionable in social scientists to compare human communities to living organisms. And by tissue, what I see here is the idea of connective. So connective tissues, this web of interconnections that provides structure and holds a skeleton together. Now, there are limitations to thinking about community as an organism. He does unpack that here, but also more recent theorists have similarly unpacked that. Um, But yet, we've also found, like I've read some really wonderful theorists more recently as well. I'm thinking uh, there's a geographer by the name of Karen Till who talks about- She was my advisor at Minnesota. Ah, So she she was, was when I got my master's, yeah. The Wounded Cities mm-hmm. um, paper that she wrote has been really helpful for me in my own research on post-industrial communities in the Midwest. This idea that places and their people can be wounded in really grievous ways by situations outside of their control, be it a disaster, human-caused disaster like this book that we're discussing today by Erickson, or by deindustrialization, which is what my current research is focusing on. But her point is wounds are not always permanent, that there's ways to heal them um, through certain civic engagement, through reconnective work. And I think that this is where Erickson is gesturing towards, though I don't think he really makes that explicit, um, certainly not as beautifully as Karen Till does uh, in this this section about tissues. Yeah, and I like that term tissue, but it is pretty vague, right, where Mm -hmm. it's it's clear that he's not just talking about the connection to the neighbors, although you could easily read it as that, that being the main focus, especially thinking about where the a lot of the examples about people moving away and things like that. Yeah. But it also seems like it is that connection to place, which I like, that's washed away by the flood or that's washed or that you lose by moving to a new environment. Yeah, I think it also raises important questions about um, the, the idea of transferability between places. Uh, my, here's where students really connect with this. We take for granted today that we can up and move yeah, and that there are a few costs to that physical transition between places. And in many cases, our moving is very agentive. So we choose to move, to go to college, to, to seek a job that we really want, but there are always losses. And here, by looking at a, a, an extreme case uh, where people are forced to move, 4,000 out of the 5,000 people who lived in this valley had to permanently move away to safer places. So that's an utter tilting of a landscape. The place is never the same again. And so this extreme case actually helps us think and helps students think through, what what does it mean to try to transfer the neighborliness, those bonds you have with childhood friends or the the people that can kind of make you who you are? When you move to a new place, you don't have that, even if it's fully your choice. And, and we can have really, in classrooms, I've had really powerful discussions kind of grappling with this, 
this tension of assumed mobility in our world today. Talked about community. We've talked about the individual, these central concepts. Where do we, where do we go from here? All right. So I want to pivot and think about place and landscape. So I'm going to take us to page 200. And just as a, a bit of a preface here, because we're jumping into the middle of an idea, Erickson is dropping breadcrumbs through this whole chapter about losses that are accruing over time for people in Buffalo Creek. And there's this, this question that he's pulling out with each page that passes, where are these losses taking place? These losses play, are not taking place in the abstract. There's a physicality that is increasing local disorientation. So on page 200, I'm going to read... Um, starting just below the italicized quotation. Oh, and we should also say we're not reading any of the italicized quotations, but they're really great. <laughs> As, they are fantastic. Thinking about from the perspective of the qualitative methods, I mean, he man, he does a very good job of setting up each of these arguments. He does. And as a, a brief aside, most of these italicized quotations are from transcripts that were gathered through an insurance company and through a legal firm for a class action lawsuit. And so they're, they're quite anonymized. Yeah. They're quite de-identified, which is uh, troubling in some quali- sense of qualitative methods. Yeah. And yet um, he does still do the work uh, to interpret them very tightly. And I think it's a really good model of taking data that you are provided and working hard to very clearly and articulately interpret what's going on in the patterns that you're seeing in this data. Okay, with that, uh, page 200, The symptoms that make up disaster syndrome, which he refers to on the previous page, are the classic symptoms of mourning and bereavement. People are grieving for their lost friends and lost homes, but they are grieving too for their lost cultural surround. They feel dazed, at least in part, because they're not sure what to do in the absence of that familiar setting. They have lost their navigational equipment, as it were, both their inner compasses and outer maps. I mean, this this really calls to me, as we were talking before and as as we mentioned when uh, you brought up Karen Till, my background is in geography before switching over to sociology. So reading these sections really does remind me of why I initially was drawn to geography. But so what what stands out to you here? These are, this is the section where I was having as a first year master student at Wisconsin my initial aha moments. Fundamentally, I was asking of some environmental human interactions I was seeing, what was happening when loss and displacement occurred due to civil war, due to climate change, due to economic forces that were driving people away from farmland or iron mines. And this quote provided me with a theoretical lens to think about, what if we think about places not just as a location where things happen, but actually as navigational, as a compass, as a navigational equipment, that when that navigational equipment is lost, it impacts the people who lose it in a very fundamental way. Yeah, and it's interesting. You can see traces of, again, not what we're going to focus on in your reading of this, but you can see those traces of his interest in the psychological here, right? Especially when he talks about any type of trauma, he he does focus very much on the individual experience. Can I actually build on that and take us to page 204? Yeah, that'd be great. He makes a really tight connection between the psychological experiences and the specific loss of place, both in the physical sense and the sense of knowing where one is in space and community. So I'm at the bottom of the page here. 
and he he starts the paragraph saying the clinical name for the state of mind, which was a series of of statements referring to a sense of depression, is of course depression, and one can hardly escape the conclusion that it is at least in part a reaction to the ambiguities of post-disaster life in the hollow. Most of the survivors never realized the extent to which they relied on the rest of the community to reflect back a sense of meaning to them, never understood the extent to which they depended on others to supply with them with a point of reference. When survivors say they feel, quote, adrift, displaced, uprooted, lost, they mean that they do not seem to belong to anything and that there, is, there are no longer any familiar social landmarks to help them fix their position in time and space. They are depressed, yes, but it is a depression born of the feeling that they are suspended pointlessly in the middle of nowhere. It is like being all alone in the middle of the desert, said one elderly woman who lives with her retired husband in the cluster, a cluster of homes. As she talked, the voices of new neighbors could be heard in the background, but they were not her neighbors, not her people, and the rhythms of their lives did not provide her with any kind of orientation. I don't know if this question is going to make sense, but <laughs> thinking about the use of place and geographic terms as both metaphor and also their actual lived experience and trying to make sense of what he's what he's saying in this section, that idea of being adrift, being displaced, uprooted. They're literally displaced and uprooted, but it also seems like their way of making sense of their psychological experience. Is that making any sense? Absolutely. It's actually one of the things I really like about Erickson's treatment of place is this connection with the psychological orientation, with our sense of self, uh, with social identity. I, I use this section of this chapter to teach about social identity and its relationship to social structures or social institutions, because we can see with, again, crisis, disintegration, how those two are related to each other. And so this this link between the metaphor and the reality that you brought draw out is, is really fantastic, because isn't this how we talk as humans? We do talk in metaphor that's totally linked with our surroundings. We talk of pursuing pursuing a vocation or a career, but feeling lost along the way, or feeling like we've misplaced our passions, or feeling disoriented in a new physical situation, but also that reflects a sense of internal turmoil as well. And so already we know intuitively that we, we do this movement back and forth. And I think by drawing out those vocabulary um, terms being used by interviewees, Erickson is helping us theorize that maybe this is not just a turn of phrase, but maybe we can take the role of place and landscape more seriously. Maybe it does something. Maybe there's work being done by place that for the most part, sociologists in the 1970s were not thinking about. They were mostly thinking about what was happening mentally on, on the social psychological level or in a social community. They weren't placing those experiences and thinking about how landscape is a mechanism for something else. I like that explanation a lot, in part because I could have seen a sociologist theorize this just simply as this is the language that's available for them to use that others will accept because it relates to the experience that they've had. Everyone can understand that language. It has a power when you use that language. So this would just be a study of what type of justification is acceptable. But it you're, it doesn't seem like you're reading it like that either. I would read it as against the here of Boltanski and Thevenot's 
justifications, uh, seven forms of justification and motivation, I, I would read it as more than just discourse. Um, because throughout the book, we are being introduced again and again to not only how important the landscape has been to people locally, um, but what the, because this is such an extreme case where the entire community, the entire region is unrecognizable to people who live there, we can start understanding that their words, their justifications might actually have more meanings than we as outsiders might normally attribute to them because we can hear those words and watch through Erickson's beautiful descriptions, watch the devastation of the landscape and say, oh, they are literally disoriented. They literally don't know who their neighbors are because in this much of this book, uh, everyone's living in temporary tents and trailers. They have no sense of social networks. They don't know who's alive and who's dead. In this crisis situation, the physicality, the materiality of their world is colliding with their internal world and their sense of community in a really powerful way. I could see how this would be the type of theorizing that could be generalized, whether it's an urban community being uprooted by a, a building being destroyed or, or a highway being built, or um, in this case, it's looking at this disaster. But that type of theorizing connection to place, that travels. It absolutely does. And yeah, in the conclusion, he talks about how he's trying to introduce, he calls them sensitizing con concepts. This is on page 250. Oh, wait, should we talk about, let's talk about, I know that there was a section that you wanted to discuss about oh, time. Yeah. Let's talk about time, and then I want to come back. It would be we'll nice to, to wrap up with thinking about how he actually yeah. does theory. And then um, we can, there's also a great section at the very end of the conclusion where he gives his prediction for the potential horrors of modern society that we'll see, which are very prescient. <laughs> and yeah. We don't have to end with that point, but I, I did want to highlight that to the readers when he lists the mm. four problems that he could see potentially arising. But let's, let's go to time for a bit, because that is something yeah. that I also think now sociologists are paying a lot of attention to, mm -hmm. and geographers as well. Time has become this new thing that we're trying to make sense of. So I'd, I'd love to hear how you understand what he's doing. Yeah, we're here on page 209, and I'll read um, part of the, the bottom of 209, maybe to the bit of the top of 210. Sections disorientation. It has been noted many times that the survivors of a disaster are likely to be dazed and stunned afterward, unable to locate themselves in time and place. Time stops. Places and objects seem transitory. Survivors have trouble finding stable points of reference in the surrounding terrain, both physical and social, to help them fix their position and orient their behavior. The people of Buffalo Creek responded to the events of February 26 in just that way. Many of them reported that the flow of time seemed to stop all at once. Quote, everything has stopped. The end is here. There can be no tomorrow. Time has stopped for us. Our lives are over. For a long time after the disaster, people were uncertain as to where they belonged in the universe and how they should behave in relation to it. Quote, I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything. Now, all of this can be understood as a natural result of shock. But the fact is that people continued to experience that same sense of disorientation for months and even years after the flood had passed. Quote, we find ourselves standing, not knowing exactly which way to go or where to turn, said one survivor. Quote, they should call this whole hollow the Bureau of Missing Persons, said another. We're all just lost. 
The hollow is changed, of course, and the people continue to live unsettled lives. But the familiar hills are still there. The old road, though damaged and scarred, curves up, curves its way up the narrow valley as before. The schools have reopened. The stores are back in business. The churches are functioning and the men have returned to work. By now, it would seem a certain equilibrium should have been restored, but no. Along the entire length of Buffalo Creek, people continue to feel that they are lost in a, quote, strange and different place. Part of the trouble is that the terrain is different. And I'm going to end there and tempt folks to look at the quotations that follow. Okay, so help, I've, I have a question, which is basically a repeat of the question I had last time, but uh, with the last section. But first, before I jump into that, what, how do you understand what he's doing here? What's, what's going on in this section? So I think he's doing two things. One is substantive work of interpretation, challenging a dominant view of how disasters work. And then the other is more abstracted and more theoretical. So I'll start with the first. First, I think he's pushing against a dominant narrative of resilience and healing that tends to be very attractive, not just in social scientists, sciences, but also in popular discourse. A disaster has happened. People have rebuilt. Everything is back to normal. And or even personal, or even your personal life, right? You go through exactly. some sort of tragedy, and people say, "Well, time heals everything," right? That yeah. common common turn of phrase. The common turn of phrase, exactly. What he's pointing out here, it, it might be the idea instead that our world uh, builds around grief, which is, I think, a more more contemporary way of understanding personal traumas, but I think this can also happen on a community level, that you never remove that grief or trauma, but rather your world might expand around it. Notably, uh, even through, so the, this disaster happened in 1972, uh, through the 1990s, uh, I think in, in the 1990s there was a, a brief um, made-for-TV documentary about Buffalo Creek and people were still very traumatized. The community was still um, uh, telling stories that sounded very similar to Erickson's book. And the landscape itself was still vacant in many senses, both in the kind of density of housing, um, in stores, and in schooling. A lot of people had permanently moved away. And so Erickson's challenging the idea that everything is going to be okay. In this case, everything was not okay. There was such a fundamental shift for everyday people, um, not just socially, but in the terrain itself, that healing in the way that we want to think about it just didn't happen. So I think that's a substantive work that he's trying to do here. And I think he's trying to bring in, theoretically, I think he's trying to bring in this idea of time. And he's trying to link and embed time with landscape and terrain in a way that... uh, in this section, he doesn't mature it as much as I want him to, but you know, it's actually, it's been, as you mentioned, Kyle, um, more and more integrated into geography, a place attachment and community attachment work, which emerged in the 1980s and 90s, incorporates time, time of residence is directly correlated with how attached someone is to a place, for instance. And so he's hinting at some of these ideas that or maybe he's planting seeds. He's planting seeds that are being harvested, I think, even to this day, about yeah, how the, time shapes Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but that, that's the beauty and frustration of this writing, is yes. that he does it in such a subtle and accessible way that it's easy to skim through it. And just, again, going back to the point before, you could almost read it as 
He's simply using the metaphor that people are using about time mm-hmm. and saying, well, this is how people explain this feeling of, of not processing grief or not getting over the, the trauma that happened to them. But when you were reading it again and going back to our previous conversation, it does seem like he's making a, a bigger statement that it's not simply language being used. It's not simply that, that the justifications that are being provided, that there's something actually going on here with time. And I want him to, I wish he stopped and did the thing which would disrupt his writing by saying, all right, now I'm going to remind you what's actually going on here. And I'm going to tell you why this matters. It's a very light touch. And here when I teach this, this as a theory text, I use it more as a prompt to ask questions and to think about what is extendable. What are the themes here that we could actually ask questions about other cases um, based on this? Because it, it is so light that we could miss it. We could just take and read it at face value instead of seeing that I think he's very gently trying to do something different. Now, certainly there's other parts of the book where he's much clearer and much stronger in his arguments. And these would be the themes of some of the, the social psychological responses to disaster. And even his emphasis on the role of place and terrain, I think is pretty clear yeah. um, throughout this chapter. The time section is pretty delicate, but it still was really paradigm shifting for me as I thought about questions, for instance, for my, my book project on deindustrialization. Often outsiders might say, all right, this community hasn't had a iron mine in 60 years. Why are you so hung up about it? And this section actually helped me form some better questions um, about post-industrial communities, thinking about how places are constructed in the image of capital or in the image of something very powerful. And when that thing is undermined, taken away, that might change the way that people relate to the community permanently. Yeah, and it seems that time actually moves in a different way for that community, not just yes. for the individual, but for that in the actual space. And that that disorientation in the way he's talking about here could happen for the individual, but it seems like it also could happen for the whole the whole group and it can be built into the environment. Yeah, it's a it's it's a community wide radar. I, I want to just point out one last quote from the section that builds on that. On page two thirteen, just at the bottom, there's a short paragraph. People normally learn who they are and where they are by taking soundings from their fellows. As if employing a subtle form of radar, they probe other people in their immediate surround with looks and words and gestures, hoping to learn something about themselves from the return signals. But here I'm flipping to the last page. But when there are no reliable objects out there to receive those exploratory probes, people have a hard time estimating where they are where they stand in relation to the rest of the world. And we see here that some of those themes of the individual, where the individual situates within the community, but then also how if the terrain has physically changed and the social context has changed and it's like that for a long time, that can be incredibly disorienting and it can change the way that a community works and sees itself over a period. Let's move ahead to thinking about Kai Erickson as a theorist and how he actually does theory. So there's a lot in this conclusion. And like we've done a few times, I, I hope that people listening take the time to read through the rest of this. But I do, I do want to spend a little bit of time thinking about what it means to read him from the, from the perspective of, of doing theory. Uh, and then I know earlier you mentioned some of the critiques that your students brought up. If we have time, I'd love to hear if there's other critiques you have of this. Certainly. So on page 250 of the conclusion, I'm going to take us to a brief paragraph, um, the first full paragraph on 250 about his sensitizing concept framework. I've not been very precise in the way I introduce this notion 
referring to axes of variation in the previous paragraph, because I mean it to serve as a sensitizing concept in Herbert Bloomer's terms, rather than as a finished theoretical formulation. But I'm proposing here that one can learn something about the cultural history of a people by watching the way they cope with the ambiguities built into their cultural terrain and by tracing the way that they move along the axes thus formed. Seems like a good starting point to understand the importance of that paragraph is what he means by sensitizing concept and what that's doing for his approach. So help me out there. <laughs> sure. So I find this a useful lens through which to see his very gentle touch on theory throughout the book. So rather than arguing strongly that he has a framework, a three-point argument that his um, book has provided evidence for, this is truly an inductive book in that he was provided data. He didn't actually get to select the data um, because it was previously conducted interviews. And from that, he was searching for some way to make sense of that data. And elsewhere, he discusses this a little bit further, both in the introduction and, and throughout this conclusion. So I think the idea of the sensitizing concept is useful because it, um, it gives us a way to understand when he talks about disorientation in time, but he doesn't make a really strong argument. That, that's really not quite how modern theorists would approach empirical data. So what is he trying to do? What work is he trying to do with this light touch? I think he's trying to raise questions. I think he's trying to say we can learn something through crisis about community culture, but through these sensitizing concepts, that's how we can ask the questions from which we can learn. I have a question about, it's not exactly following that, but it, maybe it's, I'm not sure if it's more of a methods question or more of a theorizing question. But there's a few sections that we didn't read where he talks about one of the challenges is that everyone seemed to be saying the same thing. Mm -hmm. And he repeats that a few times in different ways. And I'm wondering, we had that tension earlier between community and the individual, and you could also think about place and the individual. To what degree does he take seriously the agency of the individual to make sense of what's going on? Because there's, a, there's times where I really think he's doing that. But then when he had this critique of, well, everyone's saying the exact same thing, then it seems like he's almost moving towards, well, the, the individual, isn't their processing isn't really part of the story. It's just about this kind of more top-down experience. Yeah, I think he picked up on a limitation of this project in general, actually. He doesn't really know what to do with people's narratives and stories. Yeah. I think this has been much better developed with narrative theory in social scientists, sciences, broadly writ, more recently. Um, in research on, on trauma and how people perceive trauma, both from psychology and medicine, but then also from uh, this some fantastic qualitative research on people, uh, how do people create stories to make sense of really challenging situations. Without that framework, I think that Erickson's interpretation of how people are telling stories kind of falls flat. So that's a, that's a theoretical critique I have. But also methodologically, I think because he got transcripts that were based on interviews conducted by essentially lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> of course, people's answers would sound the same, well, depending on the interview protocol. And so we don't actually know a lot about how the interviews themselves were conducted. Often, to, to 
generalize broadly here, but often for depositions or other legal proceedings, the types of questions you ask and types of answers you can receive are very strict. And and if you know the purpose of the interview, yeah, you want to get money for what happened to, to your to your town and house. So that's going to affect how you answer things as well. And I'd argue that's not a sign of lack of agency, but rather of reading the room and understanding the purpose of yeah. um, the, the task at hand. Now, Erickson did do some ethnographic visits. So he, he did stay kind of extended couple week visits over several years. He did some original interviews, which um, definitely have more life and dynamics throughout. There, there tends to be the non-italicized interview we quotes throughout this book. But, but this is the limitation my students have picked up on, that they might be missing something or there might be some interpreta- interpretation flaws because of the way the research itself was conducted. Are there other critiques that you have of the way he theorizes or any of his claims? I'll zoom out and and speak to the responses from scholars of Appalachia. So there is a, a rise of critiques from folks studying the Appalachian Mountains, rural cultures. Uh, I'm thinking here there are people involved in folklore studies, uh, rural sociology, in labor studies, writing in response to everything in its path. They were very critical of Erickson stereotyping. And I intentionally skipped some of the paragraphs when Erickson, in, in a very 1976 fashion, uh, talks about kind of mountain culture in, in a rather homogenizing way, um, assuming um, certain class and race and even gender dynamics and not really probing them very deeply. Uh, and so understandably, and I think appropriately, there's several critiques levied by, uh, there's a really good one by Ewan and Lewis in Appalachian Journal in 1999, if anyone wants to look it up, um, on Buffalo Creek Revisited, Deconstructing Kai Erickson's Stereotypes, where they take a series of stereotypes that Erickson returns to again and again about the culture of, of West Virginia, and they deconstruct them. They, they problematize them in a really useful way. So if you want to teach this in a class, the whole book, I really encourage actually pairing it with an, with Ewan and Lewis's article okay. um, to help flesh out what's actually going on on the ground. So substantively, that's that's my main critique that there he falls into the trap of stereotyping a bit too much for my liking. Yeah, and while I was very complimentary of the way he marshals this data to build his argument, and I think it is very descriptive and accessible. Mm-hmm. One thing you don't get is a sense of who any of the people speaking are, yes. right? So you might get the tiniest bit and say, well here's this person and, you know, their age and gender or something like that, right? But you're not learning. You're, you really don't learn about anyone in the book, or at least in these. In, I only read this chapter, so I shouldn't speak yeah. of the whole book. But No, it's like that in the whole book, and it is a problem, particularly because so much of the point of this book is thinking about how social relationships are embedded in place. We don't get to know how people are related to each other. What we want, what I'm craving for in this book is what more contemporary ethnographies have a clear set of relationships expressed. So I'm thinking here of Colin DeRolmack's new book, Up to Heaven and Down to Hell, where you actually get to know how different people in a small town, rural community relate to each other during a crisis period. Uh, We don't get that with Erickson's work um, in this book. And it's a limitation of the data um, that I think undermine some of his arguments. I thought this was a wonderful conversation. I'm excited to continue to see 
who's drawn on these ideas. I'm excited for your book, which is going to be coming out in about a year. Is that mm -hmm. fair? But I want to leave you with the final word. So are there any, any sort of concluding thought, any final takeaway, any brief reminder that you'd like to end the conversation with? And I know I'm leaving that very open-ended. No, it is. <laughs> a, proper, a proper quality of question that <laughs> gave you complete freedom. Yeah. Here, let me end with one quote and a brief reflection on it. So I'm back in the conclusion here on 257 at the bottom of the middle paragraph. Erickson says, a world without stable points of reference is a world in ruins for those who find themselves without the personal resources or the good luck to navigate effectively in it. So a big takeaway I have from this whole project is the importance of place in helping us locate and orient our social resources. And I think it's just such a powerful uh, reminder that in times of crisis, which in this case was an acute crisis of a dam collapse, but today might be a pandemic, persistent poverty, climate change, we're, we're living in constant times of crisis, that if we want to think about resilience, if we want to think about equipping communities and individuals to face um, the wounds that are inevitable in our globalized and neoliberal world um, and changing climate around us, then we need to think about strengthening the physical resources available for physical neighborhoods, counties, groups of people as they interact with one another. All right. I think that is an excellent place to end. So Thank you again for taking the time to talk. Thank you for introducing me to this book, which is, again, something that I've known is, has existed, but I'll, I probably never would have picked it up. So um, this, this has been great. Fantastic. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing theme music, SUNY Brockport for providing financial support, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance. <laughs>